Earlier this year, the word looked on in shock as a consortium of the world's biggest football clubs, including six of England's richest teams, attempted an aggressive and ill-advised coup of the world's most popular sport. The proposed European Super League gave all football fans a deep sense of unease. What had been known for decades, but perhaps not truly acknowledged until now, was that football at the highest level had become little more than a plaything for the planet's wealthiest men. With that has come greater and greater polarisation between the rich and the poor, a disconnect between fans and the players they adore, and a desire to maximise profits above all else. I'm sure I'm not alone when I say the proposed Super League was met by little more than a shrug in my house. In all honesty, I was happy that the cat was finally out of the bag. Take your ball and sod off, I thought. My allegiances with football have always been less about the sport and more about everything good that comes with it. The friendship, the camaraderie, the sense of unconditional inclusion. Now, it would of course be disingenuous of me to suggest that I, as a white heterosexual man in my mid-twenties, has ever had to truly deal with exclusion in any real-world sense. It would also be naive of me to suggest that football has always been a place where everyone feels welcome. Far from it. But I firmly believe that football, more so than anywhere else, has the power to enact social movements that encourage better inclusion for all. With that in mind, I introduce you to the Football Without Everyone Is Nothing series, brought to you in association with Man Markin. Every day this week, I'll be speaking to different individuals and organisations, all of whom have used football as a vehicle to improve social inclusion. As we all well know, social inclusion is a key component of improving our collective mental health. So that will be a crucial part of our focus as well. Today, in episode one, we'll be speaking to Natalie Washington. Now, if you would like to get involved this week, you can, of course, find us on Twitter at marking underscore man. And don't forget to use the hashtag football without everyone is nothing. I'm now going to hand you over to Natalie and I'll see you on the other side. Yeah, yeah, always a good way. Uh, yeah, so I'm Natalie Washington, pronouns are she, her. Uh, and um, yeah, I'm um, a trans woman who plays football and I'm also campaign lead for Football v Transphobia. Absolutely. First port of call then, Natalie. Do you remember when you came to an understanding that you that you were transgender yeah yeah i do and it's an interesting one because i think like it's like with anything i suppose it comes in stages as your awareness grows and you kind of get a bit more comfortable with maybe challenging yourself and and and, and actually kind of um admitting things to yourself right but um so i mean the first realization i i guess i had that there was something that um was air quotes not normal about me uh, and you know that, i wouldn't use that terminology but you know it was four or five years old right so when you're that age that you don't have the the vocabulary to really to describe that and, and i didn't say anything to anyone at that age to be absolutely clear but um yeah that sort of age i was like okay i guess the way it manifested itself to me was a kind of a a discomfort with how i was seen and how i was kind of if you want categorized by by the world and then also kind of a a longing i guess to be more like girls that i knew you know like i was like well i wish i was more like them i wish i was you know i wish that was me and i guess it was a bit of that and and then as i got older you know i think there there was a there was a moment definitely when i was about 18 19 maybe 19 20 where i was <sighs> absolutely had a realization and at that point i don't know if i knew the word transgender because bear in mind you know like it's only in the last 10 years or so that that's really come into sharp focus and been used much more often but 
I definitely had a realization that at that point that there was something and at that point I thought there was something wrong with me basically but I knew that was a thing I was like okay I guess I admitted that it wasn't going to go away um and then I guess the the final realization if you will when I thought I've got to do something about this um and came to a degree of acceptance uh, was more like when I was sort of 28 um so kind of pushing 10 years ago now but you know that then that was at that point it was more like okay how am I going to deal with this how am I going to make this how am I how am I going to come to a point of equilibrium where I'm comfortable with this as a as a as a part of my um part of who I am I guess in terms of all those years I mean you you talked about being sort of four or five and having some kind of inkling that there was something that was making you uncomfortable at a a sort of kind of base level, I suppose, in, in, internally. Between that time and, you know, when you get to 28, and I mean, that's, a, that's I know, a hell of a long time. It's like somewhere between a quarter and a third of most people's lives. How did how did it kind of affect your life on a, on a sort of day-to-day basis, you know, knowing that there was, you know, there was something that you weren't comfortable with about yourself? Yeah. Um, I mean, it differs because obviously, like, it's not, for me it wasn't a case of every day was pure misery you know right it was it was um there were days that were really really difficult and there were, and there were periods of time that were more difficult than others depending on i guess the context of the time and i guess it's like anything else like this like depending on how stressed or anxious or otherwise depressed i was at the time it would come to the fore or i'd be able to put it away so if i was quite ha- comparatively happy in life and things were going my way i guess i could I could put it to the back of my mind and I wouldn't think about it so much. Um, but I think when I had, you know, I, I got bullied at school. Um, and so going through school was quite, it was quite difficult. Um, and, uh, and dealing with that at the same time was, was very, very hard. And of course they, they make each other worse. Right. So because I was being bullied and because I didn't feel like accepted at school, I didn't, I didn't really have any friends and stuff like that. I had nobody to talk. So I didn't feel that there was a support for me to, to begin to verbalize any of this and my you know my family were, were i got on well with my family and i still get on well with my family and, and i would i had supported by them but even then when you go back to sort of the the 90s the early 90s if you kind of if a child came out and said they were trans you, you know i've spoken to people who did do that and often their experiences were not good when so, do, you, do you remember when you first had that conversation with somebody as in when you you first verbalized that to somebody then? yeah yeah i do and it was when i was about 19 or 20 so i i didn't say a word of that to anybody uh having thought about that all through my kind of you know school age and, and teens and whatnot and i tried to talk to someone a friend of mine when i was about 18 or 19 20 something like that it was your first couple of years of university um and it basically didn't go very well like they didn't outright reject me but they just kind of were taken aback and pretty much made it clear they didn't really want to talk about that topic anymore. Who, and who, so that who was it? That was a friend of mine at uni. At uni. Yeah. So um, and she she seemed like someone that I could talk to about it. And in a way, there was probably at that point it was a little bit of desperation from me just trying to reach it. Like I was struggling with it. As I said, you know, that was a that was a time I was struggling with it. Um, I was not doing very well anyway like I was I was quite depressed I was struggling with um not so much struggling with the course itself but just struggling with like being I guess away from home for the first time struggling with kind of like that that move into adulthood and that move into the expectations that come with that um 
that was that was quite difficult and you know at that point really like the i'd gone past sort of the the real physical manifestations of you know, 18, 19, I've gone through puberty and all that kind of stuff. And that, that had started to become really quite difficult for me. So I wanted some support and I wanted to reach out. And I, I think it was really desperation kind of probably didn't make great judgment in terms of who to speak to, but it just kind of happened. Um, and of course that bad experience, let's say it wasn't like an outright rejection, but it was just like it, loud and clear that I, she didn't really want to talk about that. Um, and so I didn't really speak to her much after that. But um, yeah, so that that kind of pushed it pushed me back into the, into the closet, if you will, for for quite a few more years, because I felt there's there's not there's not a way for me to talk about this that will that will allow me to maintain the relationship with the person I try to talk to about it. Which you know that's that's pretty much textbook, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, for for that for for the subject matter, isn't it? I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I suspect it's it's as you say at the at the time when you were trying to sort of verbalize it, discuss it with people. It's a it's a concept even now that a lot of people I think trying to struggle with, don't they? In in terms of in terms of discussion points, and I think it makes and this is something I was I was I, I was going to ask you about as well. Is I suppose it makes people kind of uncomfortable, isn't it, to a degree? And I wonder if a lot of that is about. Do people worry about saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing or not really knowing how to react to it? Did you find that that, that process got easier over time or is that always been yeah. kind of a, a stumbling block? Yeah, it's definitely got easier. And I think for two reasons. One is I've mastered my own story a little bit more. So I know what I'm telling people. <laughs> a lot of that is practice, right? You know, you, you go around coming out to people and you're telling the same story to people over and over again. And you master that story. But that, but then that's so much of knowing yourself anyway, isn't it? Is mastering your own story and what you, who you are and what you're about. So, so that, that's personally helped me a lot. But also I think wider than that, society understands the topic a lot more. So, for example, you know, going back to the, the discussion that I tried to have with someone when I was 19 or so. Societal understanding of trans people in what year would that have been? 2001, 2002, something like that, was not was not very good. Uh, I don't know if we'd even had the Coronation Street storyline, um, Haley Cropper yet. I don't know if that had even happened for people. No, I don't, I don't think so. Because no. no, I, I, remember, I remember that. I remember when my mum was watching Corrie when that mm. was on, actually, yeah. Yeah, so so there was no cultural reference point for people to, to understand it better. And I think an awful lot of people, as they still did when I started to come out, sort of you know, over 10 years after that, thought that this was a sexual fetish thing, mm. um, which, of course, it isn't. But there was that there was that level of misunderstanding. And so, therefore, people think, well, why, why are you telling me about this? Why are you, why are you pulling me into your kind of... Bedroom yeah. habits or whatever, you know, like, <laughs> uh, which couldn't couldn't be further from the truth, really. But but yeah, that that level of understanding was greater in 2014 when I started to have these discussions with people, and is even greater now. Although, of course, this it's gone in other directions in some respects now. But it's it's definitely got a lot easier. And yeah, and it's and it's those, it's the individual side and it's the societal side as well. Yeah, of course, and 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 I know as well. You know, we're here to talk about. About your relationship with football as well, Natalie, and I know you're a big mm. football fan, and I've you know I've, I've followed you personally on Twitter for a while, so I know it's 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 a you know you talked about your you know your work that you do with um with football versus homophobia and and, and that organisation, and you've played football since you were a child, haven't you? And 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 
how important was mm. was football to you growing up and how important was was football to you you know as you became a teenager and then an adult as well yeah i mean so i've, I've always actually i wouldn't say i've always been a football fan but i've had an interesting relationship with football insofar as when i was young as in and when i see i'm sort of under 10 you know a lot of people get into football when they're under 10 don't they and a lot, a lot, a lot of boys particularly and, and thankfully girls do as well you know uh, now but weren't, weren't, weren't probably allowed to when i was that age so much but um the um i got into a football originally really because it was i felt it was something i was expected to do um you know as growing up as, as you know being perceived as a boy and so on like people think well you should be into football you should be playing football you know um i didn't have a great sort of family traditional allegiance of being into football my dad's a football fan he played sunday league football but there was no like he, he didn't take us to football because he didn't really support a club mm. um i mean he played sunday league so you know often often the people that play aren't the ones that go to games aren't they but yeah yeah um so I didn't get into it that way. And I think sort of around kind of Euro 96, which is every, everyone of sort of that sort of age's cultural reference point, reference point for really getting into football. I got into it quite a lot. went along and tried to, you know, tried to join some local football teams. But it's another thing, you know, I hope it's better now. But if you're a sort of a 13, 14-year-old boy trying to get involved in football and you've never played before, it's actually quite difficult because there's an expectation you've got that education from the, the previous few years. That's um, um, that's a really good point, that Natalie. I don't think that's kind of. I I suspect that, that that's probably still a difficulty now because I mean, by the time I was thirty and I've been playing almost ten years, so hmm. I think it it's 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 difficult, isn't it? Because I think with sport to a degree, in order for like it, the, the, there are different obviously ability levels and experience levels that people have and people need to be almost matched up to a degree because yeah. you won't enjoy the game if you're not as good as the other people and kind of vice versa as well, I suppose, isn't it? I've not really thought about that, really, and I guess it probably is a probably still something that's quite difficult to, to, to bridge today, I'd imagine. I would expect so, yeah, and I always think, actually, you know, in the context of, you know, as you are, I'm a great believer in, like, sport as a lever for social change, as a way of helping people feel included, a way of, like, you know, giving people the, the obviously the physical but also mental health benefits of being involved and for, for adult men as well I think it can be really quite difficult to get involved in the game because there's the expectation you've got that football education and you know what you know how to play a certain position at 11 aside or whatever and you know you know how to strike a ball and all that kind of stuff which actually my experiences in the women's game doesn't exist so much because of the the context that it exists within um it's a challenge that the game needs to, to face into, but I guess this is it's maybe a bit of a digression from the point, but we talk about that quite a lot. But you know, it's, I I wasn't until I came back from university actually that I my friends and I set up a Sunday league team basically, and that was when I really kind of got into playing the game, and that was really really part of who I was. And my, every all of my Sundays were around getting up probably with a hangover and <laughs> sort of running around a, a muddy pitch in order shop for, for 90 minutes. But <laughs> yeah, it's not really got league football if you're not hungover, is it? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's not the same. You know, I think I, I remember collapsing after a cup game that went to 120 minutes because I was just so, so, so dead from the previous night. So, but we did win. So that, that makes nah, it all, it's all worth it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so then, yeah, I, I really originally did get into football because it was like a kind of a, that, air quotes, man up thing, you know, being the person that you're kind of expected to be, 
fulfilling those gender stereotypes that you're expected to fulfill which is quite strange in a way that i got into it as a way of coping but i've now actually i've used it as a way of coping Mm. since transitioning away from those gender stereotypes you know so it's quite a quite an interesting story if i do say so myself yeah no i agree and i think (laughs) as you just said there i think football is football in particular is a an environment that it, it does allow people the ability to cultivate that 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 sort of sort of shared experience with people isn't it that it attaches you to something that's external from who you are but kind of forms part of who you are as an individual yeah. as well and that links you to people in, in a way that sort of you know it's 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 not exactly the same and and, and it's it, it doesn't bear comparison for any other reason but it's kind of like you know the way people who are in the military talk about the kind of bond that they have with people mm. who are in the military with them it's not exactly the same but i feel as though there is an understanding of it's like, you know, when you're at a party or something, you don't really know anyone, and then you end up talking to someone, and you work out that they're a football fan, but the same type of football fan that you are. Yeah. And I always find that, like, really reassuring that I feel like, right, there's someone in the room who's kind of, who, who will get the references that I'm going to, would like yeah. to discuss, if you know what I mean? And I think that's nice as a connector for people, isn't it? It's brilliant, yeah. I mean, that's, I love that way of putting it. That is that's that social connector where you've got that that same frame of reference. You can talk about, you know, whether it be your, you know, if you're a Premier League football supporter or whatever, and you can talk about, you can banter about the same clubs, or if you're a, someone who plays Sunday League and you can talk about those mornings getting up with a hangover and, you know, getting, um, you know, falling for the old girl, your shoelaces run done at a corner and that kind of stuff that, you know, like, that I've <laughs> fell for probably too many times. Um, so, yeah, that, that kind of stuff is, yeah, it, it works really well for that. And it helped, yeah, it has that same different level, as you say, but that same thing as ex-military people where you've got, you're all, you're all part of something. You're all on the same side from literally fighting for something, thankfully, in my case. But, you know, like you're all on that same side and it feels like you're part of a... Um, a real whole and I hope you know obviously you don't always feel part of that but I think you know I hope that generally people do do get that feeling from it yeah I think so and I think at its best that's exactly what football can be and that's obviously kind of what we'd like to do with this series of episodes is kind of highlight some examples of that and you know going back to 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 your time with with um when you were transitioning which was I believe that was back in in 2015 how how did you find that process and what what does that actually entail because i would imagine a lot of people have have heard the terms and, and understand mm. that there's you know something goes on but again as you say the understanding is probably not there and i would count myself in that without knowing exactly what what the process is for for people yeah and again it goes back to what you're saying at the front about probably people don't always feel that they can ask and actually often you, you probably can't ask you know it's, it's not always appropriate to have those conversations with people <laughs> is it but you know i mean so for me and obviously everyone has a different um Approach to this and people reach a, a level of equilibrium that works for them but so and i i started to come out in to some people in my personal life kind of i think it was 2013 or yeah it would have been 2013 um didn't do any and at that point i was coming out but i didn't know what it kind of meant for me i didn't know what transition would mean if there was going to be any of that um and then it was in 2014 um so i was my long-term relationship with my, my girlfriend at the time ended in 2014 so she I think she decided I was going to transition before I did um so because that kind of you know tells you something but um sometimes other people know you better than you do don't they yeah. but I um and then I, I went to see a GP in 2014 and said you know I, I'm I'd like to 
to think about gender transition um can you refer me to the gender identity clinic so the process typically is you'll go and see a general practitioner and you'll ask for this referral so the gp can't do anything themselves there's a few exceptions to this now where you can go to like a kind of a specialist clinic directly uh, and there is the private options if you've got the money for that but um so i asked for this referral to the gic so gender identity clinic at GIC um now the waiting list at the time for that was about 13 months um they got my referral wrong originally so they lost, I lost four or five months to that but but now waiting lists can be depending on where you are in the country can be sort of four years so it's a bit of a bit of a crisis um to be honest so there's there's a lot of difficulty with that so but straight away, you know a lot of people think that this is something that happens very very quickly and it it really isn't even if you're financially very privileged and you can do it all privately yeah, there are wait times of often years where you have to make sure that you, you, your your mind is fully made up about something. So, for example, no surgeon will do uh, a genital reconstruction surgery unless you've been kind of out and having these conversations for at least a year. Um, so, so, yeah, I got my referral, went to see the GIC in uh, 2015, I guess it would be in that sense. Um, it's funny how you forget the, the timing after a while. Um, but actually, so I actually did see somebody privately just to get some hormones in the, in the meantime, just because I had an irrational fear in my brain that I would not be able to have hormones for some reason. There'd be something, you know, some problem with my health or whatever that I wouldn't be able to, but it was obviously fine. Um, and yeah, then I quit my men's football team in 2014, end of 2013-14 season. Um, so before I actually transitioned, or before I sort of came out to, I decided to come out to some people, as I say, but I, I hadn't probably transitioned. Um, and at that point, I, I thought that was it for me playing football, really, um, because I thought, firstly, I thought, well, there's no way I can play um, women's football because I won't be allowed to, or if I am, you know, it'll be, you have to wait until post-surgery, and that's going to be five, six years down the line, or whatever. Um, if if I even go for that, because you don't have to, it's a personal choice. Um, and I thought, well, I can't really continue playing men's football because I just can't see how I can, you know, turn up on a Sunday morning, um, you know, on a, a dodgy recreation ground in Aldershot and, you know, having transitioned and playing men's football, I just thought, you know, I'm not going to last five minutes. <laughs> you know how football can be sometimes. So um, so I thought that was it. And so I, and that, the problem with that was I then got quite unhealthy. So I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't run at the time. I stopped playing football, you know, kind of, going through difficult times not eating and drinking very well and so on so after a little while I decided I need to do something about that I've got a little bit inspired by the the Women's World Cup in Canada in 2015 so I reached out to my local football club and saw if I could at least you know come down a train and um, and get involved a bit and they were really happy for me to do so so I, I said to them straight away you know I'm a trans woman is this going to be cool is this going to is this going to upset anybody um, and they were like no no it's fine come down um, so I did. So yeah. So, so that kind of that kind of got me back into it. But it, whilst all this was going on, to, to kind of answer your original question about the transition and what that means is, so I, I was on hormones by that point. I'd had um, uh, testosterone suppression. So a typical regime for a, for a trans woman, and it will obviously differ for a trans man, but um, would be some some form of testosterone suppression, and then an estrogen. Um, uh, regime as well some people just have estrogen because that will suppress their testosterone some people 
don't but the kind of the suppression of the testosterone is as important as the the addition of estrogen and that typically gets the kind of the physical results that, that people want to, to a point <laughs> um, there's only certain things it can do and obviously the age you start at makes a big difference as well but it's interesting that you mentioned the the women's world cup in canada you know because that was that was the first time I got into women's football as well, actually, mm. because because I remember a while ago, this was when I was very young, my dad took me to see, it was an FA Cup final, Arsenal were playing, and I can't remember who they were playing, but it was at the Diva Stadium, which was yeah. Chester, Chester in it, yeah. And I remember going to that, and Tramia, who's my team, have kind of on and off had a women's team. They've got a, a, yeah. a women's team now. But there was a while when they didn't. But I think they did at the time because because uh, Jodie Taylor played for for Tramia's women's team when she first started out. But I remember like, and I cannot remember the decision I made to do this. But I would because some of the games were at, like three o'clock in the morning, weren't they? Because it was the the time zone. Yeah, because it was Canada. Yeah, it was like yeah. I remember getting up at like three o'clock in the morning to watch a game, and I'd never done that before. But there was something about that World Cup, and it was kind of similar to, in in a probably in a lower key way to the 2018 World Cup where. You just felt there was kind of like a a positive momentum around the whole thing, yeah. And uh, yeah, I just I absolutely enjoyed the whole thing so much, and that World Cup probably played a huge part in why the women's game has been able to grow to 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 where it, it kind of is now, which is which is at a much kind of more national audience than it probably was beforehand. I'd imagine. Yeah, I think it had a had a big effect on the on the domestic game, the grassroots game at the time. A lot more, a lot more women. A lot more girls got involved you know, the club i'm at um so when so when i joined in 2015 we had just about enough players for one team um and i couldn't play which i guess i could come to but i couldn't play for 18 months and there were weeks when we couldn't get a team out um and it was kind of frustrating because I, I wasn't allowed to play but if i was allowed to play we probably could have got a team out because we were just you know one or two players short um and now we have three adult teams uh we've got 70 odd players signed on um, we've got girls teams for every age group uh, and that's come from you know, back in 2015 I said we had one adult women's team and we had no girls teams and that's just in six years that's that's the change and we're in a you know suburban Hampshire so like we're not in a we're not in a major city but there's still that 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 change has happened in six years which is fantastic and, and it's so that's... inclusive as well there's, there's so many different so many women that have picked up the game in the last two or three years. You know, mothers and daughters playing together. So it's, mm. you know, it's really, really interesting. I would imagine that's probably not an uncommon thing to have happened to to clubs where they've had maybe like a, a an adult women's team or a, or a junior girls team, and it's kind of stemmed from there really that it's picked mm. up. And I think that's it's good to see as well, isn't it? Because I think it's as you say, it's it's the women's game has got a lot of catching up to do, and that's in the fact that you know it had fifty years where it was basically illegal for them to yeah. to play. And the strides that it's made in a short period of time have been incredible, really. And I think it's 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 nice to see. And there's a lot of positives that I think the men's game can take out of the the attitude of the the, the women's game has got, which is sort of a slightly probably a slightly more welcoming environment than you than, than maybe it have been found in other places. In terms of when you were you were welcomed, you know, into that into that team, was that how important was that for you in terms of? You, know, you were talking about you weren't that healthy at the time. You you know you'd obviously lost what you get from being part of a, a football team. What did you kind of gain from rejoining a, a football team, a women's football team? Oh, so, so much, because I think, you know, there's, there's, there's different aspects, so many different aspects to it. On, on the one hand, um, just on that, you know, health outside, you know, it was important for me. I 
I had started running by that point just because I wanted to, again, one of the, the physical aspects of transition is if you get too unhealthy, they don't like to refer you for surgery um, because, they, you know, they get a bit funny about BMI. Mm. Um, so, so I had to try and keep, uh, and I, I, you know, I started to worry about that. So I wanted to keep my fitness up. Um, but um, yeah, so the, the physical health benefits were, were quite obvious really. Um, but yeah, feeling part of a team again, like we touched on that before, about like feeling that part of a of greater whole. Uh, like a lot of LGBT plus people, I was, I guess, a little feeling a little bit socially excluded, and, and a lot of that I did that to myself. Um, you know, it's quite early transition. You'd be very well. I was very very conscious of how I looked, um, so I didn't kind of go out so much. There were lots of places I used to go to that I wouldn't go, or at least I wouldn't go alone because uh, I would worry about how I looked and how people might react. Um, but yeah, feeling, you know, feeling part of this, this greater whole was really, really important. Having some, some respite from just kind of the day to day, like, you know, I was just going to work, coming home from work, sitting at home for a few hours, going to work again. So getting some, some respite from that cycle, uh, but also just some time to just kind of play football and not have to think about, you know, whatever was going whatever else was going on in my life you know think about i'd had end of a long-term relationship i had financial worries as, as a result of that i had um you know body consciousness issues and stuff like that so so it really helped from that regard um but also just like the actually being accepted for who i was so you know i'd reached out to a women's team they could have said no sorry we're not we're not really cool with the idea of a trans woman being here and I'd have probably been upset by it, but I'd have accepted it and I'd have just not not joined the club. And I probably then wouldn't have played football because there aren't tons of women's teams around. So I would have had to have gone quite far to find another one at the time. Um, so that probably would have would have kept me out of the sport. Um, were, you, were you surprised when they said when they when they said yeah? Did you have sort of a preconception that they would probably say no? I didn't think they would say no, but I did maybe expect some. A little bit, maybe some questions to be asked or something like that. You know, so you have to remember as well, like 2015 is before the current moral panic about the existence of trans people in British society, right? So people were maybe less aware that or were less predisposed to, to, throw, to throw barriers up. Um, so, I mean, legally, they could have just said no, I guess, um, you know, the Equality Act allows you to discriminate on the basis of um, trans identity for sport, essentially. So um, they could have probably said no. Um, and, but just, I mean, just generally, if they didn't want me there, I wasn't going to go and force the issue and turn up. You know, <laughs> no one wants no one wants to be somewhere where they're not wanted. So, um, but I was expecting maybe some more questions, but they just said, yeah, to come down to training, it's fine. Um, and I, I took the decision. I mean, I couldn't really have not been open with people anyway. I think they'd have been able to tell. Um, but but I um, I took the decision. I'm just going to talk about it openly anyway and try and answer any questions anyone has, or you know, just try and be an open an open book so that people can try to understand a little bit more. Because I thought that will help to build build rapport. And I think that was that works. Uh, not not everyone's maybe feels up to doing that, but I I was so. So that was okay. Um, but yeah, just being kind of accepted for who I was and being accepted into a women's team. I don't want to say it's validating because that's one of these things that people throw against trans women all the time is that we're just looking for validation. But it felt like I was being seen for who I was and accepted for who I was. And that that's really, really important when you're otherwise maybe feeling a little bit uneasy about your identity. So that was that was fantastic. And you you 
alluded to it before, Natalie, but I've I've watched the the video on YouTube, which is which is kind of about this this period of you coming back into mm-hmm. football, and there was kind of a a bizarre period where you were technically allowed to be an Olympian but not play yes. Sunday League football, which I thought was quite amusing in in its own way in terms of the kind of hoops that you have to jump through to to, to kind of play yeah. for, play for your Sunday League football team. Yes, yeah, so the criteria are different. So and. and someone could still find themselves in this position. Um, so the, the IOC policy on Olympic uh, participation for trans women, it has actually changed a bit since since then, but they expect a testosterone level of low, lower than five nanomoles per litre. Uh, it was 10 at the time I was trying to apply before. Um, and at the time, mine was, I think, about six. Um, I had to change my medication to get it down to the appropriate level. And then you have to be at that level for a year. So that's why I couldn't play for 18 months. It took six months to sort out why, then a year for me to actually have the new lower level. But during that whole time, I was less than 10. So I was compliant with the IOC policy, um, whereas the FA wanted 1.5 nanomoles per litre. So if you're not an endocrinologist, none of those numbers are particularly interesting. But essentially, like typically, the female range is sort of, I think, one to, to three um roughly i'm not an endocrinologist so i can't be certain and i was at six so i guess you could say fair enough i was too high um but I, you know i just had to find out what the policy was to begin with so that, that took a little bit of time uh and then yeah they said it has to be under a 1.5 so obviously halfway down and they changed my medication absolutely new testosterone <laughs> so, so it was fine after that uh but then ironically well not ironically but typically um I got my permission to play in January what 2017 um, and then got my surgery date through for February 2017. So I played two games and then I was off for surgery until the start of the next season. So it kind of conspired against me. I basically played two games in about two years, or two competitive games in two years. The um, it's funny, really, because so so a friend of mine and I we used to run a kids football team, and it, it and like I've, I, same as you, I've played Sunday league football before and Saturday league and all the rest of it, and like the kinds of the registration process and things for FA affiliated clubs is like it, it, it's very kind of infrequently applied for different things, if you know what I mean. So, mm. like I've turned up and played for mates teams and been like they've been like right, your name's Dave, Dave something or other. And I'm like, okay. So if you yeah. get bumped, that's what your name is. And yeah. you just rock up and play and nobody bats an eyelid. And the, the, everyone probably knows that you're not actually meant to be there because you've got a different pair of socks on to everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> but it seems in some ways they kind of really strictly apply it almost punitively to some degree. Um, it feels like, you know, in your case, they were almost feels as though they were, I don't know, pushing against something that was unnecessary. I, I don't know. It feels a little bit like they could have just let you play. Like it just seems really harsh. Yeah, I, like I said, this was pre-moral panic, um, so the context was different then. It did feel a bit strange at the time. Um, I mean, like, I get that they want to have they have to have some rules about it. That's you know that's fine. I don't think anyone really, um, not what too many people would suggest that's not necessary. But I think what's what gets me a bit is is the level that I played at. So for context, I'm I was playing Hampshire County Women's Division one or two i think um so we're talking about tier seven or eight um and the nine there was nine tiers at the time so like we're not talking about wsl here um and i i've always thought 
the main reason that most people participate in sport at a grassroots level is social reasons, right? It's the stuff we've just talked about. It's feeling part of something. It's being active. It's um, getting them kind of, you know, meeting people. It's participating with kind of like-minded people and, and getting the whatever joy that you get out of that. And so like it's, it's sport really at that level is kind of socially grouped anyway. And actually I've always thought, you know, why can't people play competitive mixed sports if that's the kind of thing that they could sign up to and you know like that that, that that under 18 level like the fa policy allows for that but um so it did feel a bit strange and i could play friendlies so it was kind of almost like well it's obviously fine for that so no one's suggesting it's unsafe like they have been recently with rugby players which is another interesting topic but um so it, it felt a bit odd but I guess yeah, that was that was how it was. And I, having come from a perspective of thinking that I'd probably never be able to play again anyway, I was kind of like, well, okay. And it was only when I, you know, started to talk to people and prospects of doing things like that video came up, I started to think, yeah, actually, you know, this this could be better. Um, and it was, you know, there were people that applied to the FA and they'd already met the policy so they could play straight away right so it wasn't everyone was facing that it wasn't everyone was waiting 18 months some people had been transitioned for two or three years had met all the criteria already so they just had to get the tick in the box and of course there was also inevitably those people out there that were what we'd call cis passing so like you know quote unquote you couldn't tell um who would just be playing anyway and just not tell anyone Right, it's okay. I was it. It's yeah. It's it's one of those things that feels like, as you say, at the at the level that you're playing at, it's not, it's not a profession. It's not a. It's it's done there for social reasons, as you say. That's exactly why people play football. And yep. It's it's yeah. I, I feel as though it could kind of. I think that with a lot of those things that you know, and and without going off topic, a lot of those things are kind of treated in a black and white way without looking at people on an individual basis and, and kind of weighing up the circumstances of, you know, what's the risk benefit of this situation really. Yeah. But, you know, that's kind of the sort of world that we live in to a degree as, as, as you've probably come across mm. in, a, in a number of, number of ways. You, um, we mentioned it at the top, Natalie, but you do work with football versus homophobia is that you're the, the football versus transphobia campaign lead. How did that role come about and what is it that you, that you actually do? Yeah, so it's actually kind of linked into obviously that video and, and the whole challenge I had with trying to get to play in the first place. So actually, it's quite um, quite linked to a lot of key aspects of my life actually now. So when I was, um, I was, I think when I was trying to get permission to play football. So we're talking probably 2016. Yeah, 2016. I um, was tweeting, posting a lot on social media about you know trying to get permission to play and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I got talking to um, someone on on there who was running a conference in Glasgow um, for an organisation called Leap Sports, which is kind of like an LGBT sports organisation in, in, in Scotland. Um, and they wanted me to come and speak at their conference about my experiences trying to play football um, because you know, they're running this LGBT sports sort of inclusion, inclusion conference. Um, so I said, yeah, because I was like, yeah, well, why not? You know, go and maybe try and educate some people. I know there's not, there are other trans people out there trying to play football, but not not too many. Um, and so I went to this conference, and this was what in March 2016, something like that. Um, and from that conference, I met Charlotte, who is now my wife. 
Um, so she was she was the person who invited me to come and speak. Uh, so whether successful conference, yeah, she she claims it wasn't part of the plan, but you know, <laughs> maybe it was. Um, so so we so we so we met that weekend, and I also um, bumped into Lou Engelfield from Pride Sports, who helps well put helps us put that video together that you, that you referred to, which was talking about when I couldn't play football. But then also obviously who runs uh, football for homophobia. Um, so we got talking and kind of put to, tried to put together some some campaigns around trans inclusion in football um and then in 2019 um we i think it was lou's idea said well we should do a specific football be transphobia campaign focused around trans day of visibility which is the 31st of march and what we wanted to do is just kind of yeah, at that point, trans inclusion in sports was becoming quite a hot topic. Um, and we wanted to really kind of refocus the debate around, um, quote unquote debate, <laughs> refocus that around, you know, grassroots inclusion in football and the, and the positive impacts that being involved in the game can have for, for trans people generally. Um, and, you know, recognising the sometimes slightly different challenges that trans people face compared to the rest of the LGB population. An awful lot of the challenges are the same, but but there are obviously some different ones around the kind of stuff we've just talked about right um so we wanted to do that so we started in 2019 which is quite a small um kind of like campaign just like trying to get across some information around like what is transphobia how does it manifest itself in sport what are the rules around trying to get involved in in football if you're a if you're a trans person which obviously differ depending on your identity obviously most of what i've talked about is from a perspective of a trans woman but for trans men the policy side is a lot easier, but the challenge, the other challenges may be, may be very, very different. So, um, because obviously they typically be competing in men's sport and that we've, as we said, that has different levels of inclusion. Um, so kind of you know, wanted to get a bit of a mature conversation about that. And yeah, sadly that kind of really coincided with the kind of the organized campaign against trans, against trans inclusion in sports generally in, in this country and beyond. Um, so we've ended up kind of fighting a lot of that, I suppose. Um, but really our message is about, yeah, obviously there's, we need to get inclusion right at the top level as well. We need to have a policy that works that makes sure that trans people can compete in elite sport. But really it's about making sure there's a space for trans people at every level of football. So yeah. we need to have trans people, yes, on the pitch and able to compete, but also trans people able to you know go and get the coaching badges if that's what they're interested in we want trans people able to be referees you know i only know of one trans referee in this country lucy clark um she, she's i think refereeing at quite a decent level for her now so yeah so, so you know there's some visibility there um there's um you know we want trans people to be able to feel safe like going to watch games yeah i've heard from so many trans people who having transitioned they now they're not sure about going to games anymore because they're not sure how that's going to be received. You know, we all know kind of the stuff that can get shouted and sung at, at games. So, so it's a lot more about making the wider game of football understand that trans people are kind of there and we're not going to go away, but also actually recognizing that through the game of football, we can reach people in a different way that we otherwise might not be able to. Um, because if people see a trans person at their football club, maybe they'll, think about us in a different way maybe they'll get an opportunity to ask some questions or learn some stuff that they wouldn't otherwise so i was wondering that was one of the things i was going to ask you natalie was do you find because obviously a lot of these these sort of social issues you know transphobia homophobia racism sexism whatever it, you know whatever it might be often we see them through the kinds of the, the the guys of football we see it through a footballing lens 
but these problems and and issues aren't football problems. They're, they're society problems, aren't they? And and they they you know football just reflects the things that are kind of going on within society. Do you find that football is a you know an environment that's that's more conducive to having those type of conversations about you know things like transphobia, homophobia, racism, whatever it might be, than maybe other areas of society are? And why do you think that football is a good vehicle for for that type of conversation? Yeah, I mean, I've actually I've often been surprised by the actual how actually how easy it is to have those conversations. Sometimes um, I think with football, particularly if like you've got people playing for the same club or supporters of the same club, you've almost got an automatic heightened level of initial trust that enables you to maybe have these conversations at a different level than you would if it was just a you know a random person coming into your workplace or whatever saying hey you know you should be more inclusive of trans people or whatever it, it just is that it builds that initial level of trust I mean, for example um not a trans specific one but someone i've worked with on some some football stuff before says that and he runs a an lgbt supports group for one of the for a premier league club um he said that you know, quite early on in running that group he had a man approach him when they kind of they had their kind of i don't know if they had like a little stand or whether they had their flag out at the stadium or whatever but anyway this this man approached them and said hey you know just wanted to let you know that like i'm really pleased to see you doing this i'm really pleased to see that this is here because it makes it makes my son who is gay feel much more safe coming to football with me mm. and so i think it's that sort of that that visibility and that that touch point that you or that, that vis- the visible point within the game can so often make the difference for obviously for you know in that example an LGBT person feeling able to to turn up to a game and feel included, but also for that dad in that situation to maybe understand in a different lens, mm. you know, to see that actually, you know, there are LGBT people in the game, but also that like it doesn't. There's an awful lot of stereotypes around LGBT people, right? Um, and it it shows them that it shows those stereotypes often for what they are, and that they're not actually <laughs> accurate portrayals of. Mm any or all or most of the people of that demographic and, and even if they are it doesn't make them any lesser um so i think it, it it really helps people understand that and i think sometimes it gives you that little foot in the door um you know again it's a stereotype but often you see there's a lot of lgbt representation in culture and the arts or whatever um and that's that's been there for decades and there's that, that's why that stereotype exists right but it hasn't been so much in sport, or at least in in men's sport, anyway, at least. Um, and obviously, there's a whole different cultural stereotype around women's sport. But um, and I think just having having that common language of football helps you kind of get the foot in the door and helps you start to get the trust of somebody and helps they they immediately see you as one of them in a way. Yes. Yeah. Which then <clears throat> builds that trust. Yeah, I think that that's. That's that's so true, and I think you, you when you know when you were doing some of the stuff on Twitter and that, that I've seen, uh, ally is a bit is a big way that, that's used, and I think that's that's an important way for people. I think football does kind of naturally provide allies, even with people that you may or may not get on with because you support the same team. It links yeah. you to something immediately, doesn't it, and gives you a shared kind of common yep. goal, really, which which I think, as you say, is is useful for opening the door for those conversations. In terms of for people listening and for, you know, for football fans generally, I mean, we did an episode a while ago about 
you know, how can we as so to myself and the two other lads who do this podcast, Ryan and Ant, those three straight male football fans go who go to matches every week or did before COVID. What can we do as football fans to make it a more welcoming environment? What are things that we can do on a kind of match day basis or, you know, online, etc.? What kind of advice would you give to anybody listening who is a football fan who, you know, to make it a more welcoming environment, to make it a more comfortable environment for people? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a few things people can do, and it obviously depends on your level of involvement. I think if you're if you're going to games, um, you can um, calling stuff out if it's safe to do so. So if someone's using homophobic language, transphobic language, whatever, you know, calling that out and saying, you know, hey, that's not that's not cool, you know, whatever. In the same way that you, hopefully people would do with with racist language or whatever. Obviously, we don't. Not everybody does it, and and of course, it's not always safe to do so, right? So you've got to look after your own safety, I suppose, as well. But that's that's one thing. And actually, one thing that I see a lot that gives me a good degree of heart, actually, is um, that people can do is every Pride season, you'll see a lot of football clubs, for example, will change their social media profile picture to one with a rainbow on it or something, right? Yeah, yeah. And you'll get a load of homophobic comments underneath. But actually what's really heartening to see is when almost the community polices itself and people say, Oh, you know, come on, like don't don't be homophobic. We don't want we don't want homophobes like you at our club. That kind of stuff can be really can be like for me as an LGBT person, seeing that makes me think, okay, wow, this is I can't imagine this being the case twenty years ago, you know. So that's really good. Uh, and that's something that's quite easy to do. Um I think as well, making it clear to to clubs that you're involved with, whether it be supporting or going to, that actually you care about these sorts of issues is important. So again, you know, like reacting to those sorts of things, um, like if there's an opportunity to influence things, like whether it be fans consultations or, you know, like, um, you know, a lot of um, grassroots clubs, for example, you could, you know, any club, I suppose, you could go to an AGM or something like that, but, or if you're interacting with that club in some other way, talking about this is an issue that you, you, you care about. Uh, obviously, there's other ways you can report, um, going back to sort of the reporting of homophobic language and so on. There's other ways you can report that. Obviously, clubs sometimes have their own ways, but you've got like the Kick It Out app. You can go and report to a steward or something like that if you hear someone repeatedly using it. Um, but I think as well, like something that's uh, quite an interesting one, I, I know some clubs do this, some clubs don't, but a lot of clubs have LGBT supporters groups. And actually, it's quite good for allies to get involved with those and see how they can help people out um, particularly when these groups are quite new because what a lot of these clubs uh, these lgbt support clubs will do is meet before a game somewhere and go to the game together mm. and that helps people feel a bit safer because of safety in numbers and obviously when these clubs when these groups are new um often they don't really have the numbers so people can help those get off the ground by supporting those groups getting involved with them and kind of going to games with people as part of a group it just helps people again feel part of that greater whole uh, an awful lot of clubs have those groups now um, and and those groups can probably give advice on a, on a club level about what people can do as well but they're they're a really powerful thing because quite quite a lot of clubs now have built relationships that are at a senior level with those supporters groups as well and can really kind of you can get to access to um senior levels within the club through that as well and get get inclusion activities off the ground um so there's some really good ones huge thanks to natalie for taking part you can find out a little bit more about her on her twitter feed which i thoroughly recommend checking out it's at trans something 
And uh, you can also find out a little bit more about football versus homophobia as well. Their Twitter handle is at FVH Tweets. Uh, and they've also got a website, which is footballversushomophobia.com. Now, we'll be back tomorrow as we speak to Stephen from the Liverpool Homeless Football Club. And that's well worth checking out. And we'll have that one out in the morning in all the usual places. Thank you for listening and we'll see you tomorrow.